Hello, and welcome to episode 45 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I'm Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love podcast, which has been producing a number of interesting episodes lately, so be sure to check that out when you're done listening to this one. We want to jump right in because this has been a very eventful first week of the Australian Open. It's it's kind of broken the mold of the last year or two of, of Grand Slams with an interesting mix of surprising results on the men's side with um, less surprises on the women's side. A lot of seeds are still alive, which is something we haven't been able to say about a women's slam for some time. But the biggest story, which is only a couple of hours old as we record this on Sunday in the middle of the Australian Open, is that Roger Federer is out. Uh, his fourth round match against Stefano Tsitsipas uh, ended in four sets, four close sets, I should say. Uh, but Tsitsipas came out on top, so our defending champion on the men's side will have to wait for next year um, to win another Australian Open. So, Carl, let's talk about this. Uh, you, you've been watching Federer throughout this tournament, although I'm thanks to the time difference between Australia and the East Coast of the U.S., I know it's hard to watch much of this one. But what do you think? Did, did you see this coming, that Federer was, was maybe susceptible to an earlier upset like this one? Absolutely. I mean, it didn't take a lot of watching Federer to to think he was susceptible. He lost to John Millman at the U.S. Open in the fourth round. He hasn't really lost to a, a top rival at a Grand Slam in a while. He's been more likely to lose earlier in the tournament. And Tsitsipas is not some unknown quantity. This is not as nearly as big an upset as John Millman was. He won the next-gen finals. He um, had some big wins in Toronto last year. He's really flown up in the rankings. So this was going to be a dangerous match no matter what. Add to that that Federer's woes at breaking serve have continued. He had a good result against Taylor Fritz in the third round, broke serve five times, but struggled to break serve in the first two rounds and in general has been susceptible to this, the randomness of tiebreakers in a lot of matches against guys he probably should be breaking serve more often. Yeah, I mean, he didn't break Tsitsipas even once, and that's only the second time since 2002 that he's failed to break serve in a Grand Slam match, uh, which is really saying something for a guy who makes his money serving, not necessarily returning. Now, I, I wanted to ask you about Tsitsipas, Carl, because this is a good example of why I don't have very many friends, but I have to throw this back at you. I think after after his big results in Toronto, you were a little skeptical about where his ranking would go. His, I know you've talked many times about the the sort of luck involved in bunching your wins, and Tsitsipas managed to do that in Toronto, which was great, great for his ranking, but it may or may not be an indicator of where he's where he's going like getting your ranking up to the mid teens based on one tournament might not be a repeatable skill um but here he is knocking out roger federer on a huge stage is is that reason to revise your expectations of sitsapas upward somewhat you know it wasn't just that he bunched wins in canada it's that two of them were arguably lucky wins or fluky wins in that he had a lower win percentage on return points than his opponent did. And in fact, that was true against Federer today as well. He just barely won fewer return points than Roger, but he was one for three on break points and Roger was 0 for 12. And especially in the second set when Roger went 0 for 8 and otherwise pretty much dominated all the stats, that could, that match could have easily gone five. So at, at least by the stats, it was pretty close to 50-50. Uh, but yeah, I, I concede that Tsitsipas has done a lot more than I expected since then. He, he hasn't had amazing wins, but he, he won Stockholm and he's played pretty well at the Australian Open and the win against Basilashvili in the third round was pretty impressive. It was another close match, but, um, they both played really well and yeah, it's not, it's definitely not out of nowhere, but he, he's 
still maybe is not quite as good as his ranking suggests, then again, if he goes on to win a few more matches here, then he will have backed it up convincingly and his ranking will be a whole lot higher. Yeah, if he goes on to win a few more matches here, he'll have a grand slam. He'll in his be pocket. the titleist, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we'll have a That's lot That's a of, big pocket, Jeff. Yeah, we'll have a lot of revising of expectations to do at that point. Um, so you've mentioned the... Yeah, the the fact that there's some luck involved in these tie breaks that Tsitsipas might have been very slightly outplayed by Federer, at least going by return points one. Federer was either unlucky or unclutch on the break points. And this is all a factor in part because the surface is so fast. And that's something I wrote about yesterday at the blog and found out that this year's Australian Open is the fastest surface or playing as the fastest surface, meaning the conditions are resulting in, in more aces and presumably also more service points won than any, any Australian open in this decade and any other slam except for one Wimbledon. So this is really fast. We're seeing a lot of tie breaks. Uh, they might favor guys like Milos Ronic, who's playing his fourth round match tomorrow. Uh, these are conditions that are supposed to help Federer. And obviously they didn't and maybe in part for these reasons you're talking about, that they help him win his service games, which is which is nice, I guess. But if he can't break, then he, it, it becomes a bit of a coin flip. And that's how this match today turned out. And after I posted that article yesterday, somebody pointed out, uh, a Djokovic fan, naturally, that of the, besides the 2019 Australian Open, the nine other fastest slams since 2011... Uh, Novak has won five of them. I wrote in our show notes that he wrote not, he won nine, but that's not right. So he's won five of the other nine fastest ones, which isn't exactly what you'd expect. You'd think, look for the fastest surfaces, that's where Federer's winning slams. Look for the medium fast surfaces, and that's where Djokovic wins his. But that's not entirely been the case. And do you think that today's result is an example of that sort of thing where Djokovic might shine that on even on a fast surface Djokovic is even if it's maybe not his most preferred surface he'll still be able to break serve and still be able to dictate the outcome of the match yeah exactly I think that's where there's a bit of a fallacy about thinking that aggressive players all thrive on fast surfaces certainly some of them do especially ones who who come to net, it seems they, they get the biggest advantage, but you have to break serve as well as a serve and guys who struggle anyway to break serve sometimes basically never break serve when the surface is, is really fast and Djokovic will always break serve. And so, yeah, that, that felt like a factor with Federer today. He did generate 12 break points, but when you win 27% of return points, it is pretty hard to, to manufacture a break of serve and on a slower hard court, he gets more chances, like perhaps at Indian Wells. Yeah, I, and sort of a side note, I, I think Sitsipas's power might be underrated a little bit. I mean, he, he can do more than just hit big forehands and hit big serves, but he really can crush the ball. I think one commentator, maybe it was Brad Gilbert, said that he thought Sitsipas's forehand was like Del Potro-level power. Uh, and if someone's hitting those big of, that big of serves and backing it up with, with ground strokes like that, then, yeah, someone like Federer is going to have a hard time breaking. Maybe not so bad for Nadal or Djokovic to figure out how to get through, um, even on a fast court. Uh, and to your point, Carl, this hasn't been a great tournament for the big servers. Isner lost in the first round, although that was to Riley Opelka, so that was a battle of big serving versus big serving. But another one is Kevin Anderson. And I think you pegged him as someone to watch, maybe as someone who could conceivably break through and win a slam if 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 an outsider, let's say, was able to do that in 2019. But he lost in the second round to Francis Tiafo. Um, and we, should, we can talk about Tiafo in a minute. But but sticking with the, the big servers... Um, Hmm. Not exactly sure where I was going with that. Uh, is there anything you think they can do 
if you are a Kevin Anderson showing up on a fast court, you've got to figure out how to how to turn things around from just being a, a tiebreak coin flip kind of a match. I mean, if you're Kevin Anderson, how do you deal with with a Francis Tiafo who can out return you and is more likely to be able to break serve? <laughs> if you're facing a player who's more likely to break serve, then you just well, have I mean, to hope for luck. Well, yeah, yeah, you hope for luck. But I, so that that was a badly phrased question. But I mean, is is there something you can do tactically to to, to improve your odds in the tie breaks, improve your odds of maybe not getting to tie breaks, um, or or if you're Kevin Anderson, do you just focus on what you do, hold serve, get to tie breaks, and and cross your fingers? Is that your only option? Yeah, if it is, you're not going to go very far in in tournaments. I. I would want data on this and maybe the match charting project has enough to answer it. I think there's a premise that players in that position should never give their opponents much rhythm in their opponent's service games so that when they do make a concerted effort, they, the return, when the returner is, is suddenly really putting balls in play, the server is not prepared, is not, does not have that recent muscle memory and maybe a similar tactic could also work in a tiebreak that uh, doing different things on return than you've been doing the rest of the set could be effective. I don't know. So many of the results you find are eh, guys are always basically doing the same thing they do when they're not in pressure situations um, as servers or as players generally. But I don't know if that's because they're not mixing it up as much as they could or because it wouldn't really work on a pro level player. Yeah, it is. It is tough. I mean, it, another thing that I posted this past week was was l- using match charting project data to look at tiebreak tactics. And it, as I've discovered before, like, returners do a little better. Like there aren't as many quick serve points in tiebreaks. Uh, rallies are longer. More returns are put in play. There were fewer aces. Uh, and it, it's tough to know whether that's because the server is playing more conservatively or the returner is playing more focused or what's going on exactly. I mean, it, it, to my mind, that would, would seem to work against the big servers a little bit. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's it's tough to drill down to specifics like that. Uh, but, I mean, that's what happened in, in Tiafo beating Anderson. He took the... He, he, took the tie breaks from Anderson. That's what happened in um, Opelka's loss to Thomas Fabiano, which is what prompted that that article of mine. And it's maybe partly what, what uh, resulted in Federer crashing out. So I mentioned Tiafo a couple of minutes ago, and Tiafo is maybe the breakthrough man of the tournament. I mean, Tsitsipas is going to dominate the new cycle for the next 24 hours, at least, from having beaten Federer. But... Tiafo beat Kevin Anderson in the second round. He played Grigor Dimitrov today and beat Dimitrov. So he's in the quarterfinals, which is a huge result for him, obviously a, a first for him. He plays Rafael Nadal in the quarterfinals, which will be a tough one. Uh, and he's one of a number of American men who had breakthrough results. Opelka, I mentioned, beat Isner. Taylor Fritz got to the third round. He mentioned he, he got to a match against Federer there. Mackie McDonald won a match. Um, and at the same time that was happening, the American men we've gotten used to seeing in the third, fourth round of slams, Isner, Query, Steve Johnson, Jack Sock, uh, they all lost in the first round. So, Carl, it seems like every time an American wins a match at a Grand Slam, there's a flurry of news articles that say we're, we're seeing a change in the guard in U.S. men's tennis. This is a resurgence. This is the future is here, dot, dot, dot. Uh, is it possibly really true this time? I mean, are, are we seeing the the emergence of a new generation of American men's tennis here? Possibly. I, I am not convinced yet this generation will be better than the previous generation, which itself was a disappointment for many American tennis fans. You know, the, there have been some really big declines by some of the guys who you generously said were fixtures in the third and fourth rounds slams. And we really may not see them pop up again, although you've written some recent posts about that would make me not count out someone who's who's in his young 30s. But 
Uh, Isner is still in the top 10. So he's defending the title points in Miami, and he'll drop if he doesn't defend those points. But he he's still pretty far out in front in the rankings, and I, I wouldn't change his guard status yet. But the rest of the the bunch, I mean, Quarry's been lackluster for a while. Steve Johnson never, I don't know what his potential was, but I don't think he ever cracked the top 20. That sounds, seems right. Uh, Jack Sock, we've seen a year of really pathetic singles tennis from him. So, so yeah, it really is just, isn't it? To say, to say changing of the guard kind of implies there was a guard to be replaced. Um. But behind... Yeah, you know, it's funny what you said about Query. He, less than a year ago at this time, I was interviewing him at the New York Open about scenarios at that tournament that could get him into the top 10. And that was largely based on some really good results at the previous year's Wimbledon and U.S. Open. And it felt in that conversation, I think maybe we even said it, like this would maybe be his only chance of cracking the top 10. And yeah, he's, he's not played anywhere near that level in the 11 months since then. Yeah, which is which is too bad. He's of of his generation anyway. So the generation before Sock, let's say, he seems to be the guy who never truly fulfilled his potential. You know, he was never like a really a potential number one. But I think people had higher hopes for him than he ever came close to realizing. Um, we've talked about Tiafo a number of times on the show, and I think we're both a little bit reluctant to appoint Tiafo to the pantheon of future greats. Um, so it's, it's a bit tough to evaluate what to, what to think of him right now. But of the, of the young players I mentioned, Opelka, Fritz, McDonald, um, probably a couple more I'm not thinking of, but Tiafo seems to be the one who's emerging the most. Uh, do you do you see anybody else in that group who you expect to do very much? Like to put a number on it. Like besides Tiafo, do you see another top twenty player in that bunch? I could see Fritz getting there. I I'm pretty impressed with how far he's come in developing everything outside of his serve. He still has a lot to work on, but he he's able to to hang with some pretty good players in rallies and, and then he has that really big serve. So I, I, I think he's got a lot of potential and more than let's say Opelka, who at least at this point still is returning serve at John Isner levels. Uh, I love, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say with, with Opelka. Yeah. He's basically John Isner. He's as tall. He has a similar serve, similar lack of return. Um, it, it, but a second ago you were telling us that, Isner is the the one of this bunch who's in the top ten. So he's he's accomplished a lot. Is there something stopping Opelka from following in Isner's footsteps? I don't think Opelka's serve is yet John Isner's serve. I mean, I think sometimes the ace numbers will be comparable. Maybe overall they are, but I think Isner gets more on second serve and has more disguise and more variety and. I mean, I think Isner's serve is mostly known for its speed, but I think he he does more with it. Now, that can be developed. And yeah, I mean, Opelka is starting from such a big advantage that you'd expect him to, you know, even if he just had some tiebreak luck in a season, that that could get him a bunch of wins in a row at a big tournament and improve his ranking a lot. So that that wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because... Yeah, as you say, I think we Isner doesn't get enough credit for the the skill he's developed around that raw talent and just the fact that he's so tall. Uh, I mean, he's he at least appears to be mentally extremely solid. Uh, his success in tiebreaks probably is related to that. And I I haven't watched that much Opelka, but I feel like an expert now because I sat through the entire five setter against Thomas Fabiano in the second round. And he didn't appear to be anything close to Isner's level of strategist or mentally stable player. And I think if you're if if you're that style of player, then it might look like you have this one impregnable skill, but 
really you're on thin ice all the time. I mean, it's great that you can reliably hold serve, but as we were talking about with Sitsipas and Federer at the beginning of the show, uh, you end up with really small margins going to tie breaks and just having a couple chances to break serve. And unless you're really focused, really stable, uh, it's going to be tough to convert that into wins, I think. I also still hold some hope for Jared Donaldson. Um, oh, yeah. I knew there was one more of that group that I was forgetting. Yeah, go ahead. And just he cracked the top 50 and had some good good wins and maybe has the most well-rounded game of the group. Although Mackenzie McDonald, while being a little older, also has a really well-rounded, solid game. Yeah, I, I watched his, I think it was his first round match against Andre Rublev, and I wrote something about that, that he was doing a lot of uh, net charging on the return, which you basically never see in the men's game these days. And I don't know if it really made much of a difference. Uh, he was winning a lot of return points either way. He was a little more successful when he return approached, but I mean, it would, I'm not sure he has as much raw talent as these other guys, but it's interesting to see someone who's willing to, to put a lot of effort into a unusual tactic and, I mean, Rublev is barely inside the top 100 right now, but his his potential is a lot higher. He's been ranked in the top 32 pretty recently, so that's a solid win for him. And, I mean, generally when someone spends the full three or four years in, in college playing and then hits the tour, like, I'm usually pretty skeptical of those players, but maybe he still has some, has some room to develop uh, since, yeah, he's still in his early 20s, so plenty of time to have a peak at age 34 as we were talking about in last week's episode um another guy i wanted to talk about is milos ronic and he's someone who i don't know if we mentioned once in a year of well i'm exaggerating a year of podcasting we probably did like 13 episodes but um i don't know if we mentioned milos ronic at all last year but he beat curios he beat stan vavrinka uh Looked pretty solid in those wins. Another guy who relies a lot on winning his serve and, and crossing his fingers in the tiebreak, but still he won those matches. Uh, what do you think, Carl? I mean, it, it, let's focus just on on tomorrow's match to start with. He faces Alexander Zverev, who's in the round four, about at his peak Grand Slam result. Ronich, of course, has gone much farther in the past. Um do you think Ronich has a good shot at scoring the the upset this time around too? Definitely. Uh, th- this is a fast court, as we've said, and he's looking good. I, I saw some of the Vavrinka match and thought thought Ronich was handling Stan pretty impressively. I mean, it was, it was a tough match, but Stan was playing well, and and Ronich was able to do more than just hit big serves and. He he's knocked Zverev out of a of a slam before. The only time they they faced each other in a slam before. Um, so he's part of that stat of Zverev not doing what people think he should be able to do at Grand Slams. I'm not I'm not making Ronich the favorite. I still favor Zverev and think he's been looking quite good going back to the World Tour Finals, including Hopman Cup. But I think it's it's nice to see. I mean, Raonic has had so many injury problems, and it's nice to see him back and healthy and playing well. Yeah, I I watched and charted that Vavrinka match and was surprised at how good he looked. I was looking back at his results from last year, and obviously they weren't great, or we would have talked about him more. But they were better than I thought. Like I, he came into this as the 16th seed and. And somehow I went through all of 2018 without really noticing him, so I was surprised that he he managed that. Like he's still winning plenty of matches, and at, as you say, Carl, he's he's had some very good results at slams. So maybe this is another chance. Uh, one more name worth mentioning is Roberto Bautista Agu, who's in in the past he's been the guy who you can count on to get to the third round or the fourth round, and then put up a good fight against Djokovic or whoever is lucky enough to draw him at that stage of the of the slam. But he came into this tournament hot, having beaten Djokovic and winning the title in Doha. And even though he came in as the 22nd seed, I think, he's scored back-to-back 
upsets, I think, including Marin Cilic today, which is a, a pretty solid result for him. Cilic was the finalist last year. Do I have that right? Yep. So, so yeah, really big result for, for RBA. Like it, with his game style being kind of neutral, maybe a little better on clay than on hard courts, uh, he's not somebody you'd ever pick to win the tournament. But if he keeps picking off players like this, he makes you wonder like what exactly he could do. I mean, if Djokovic is the favorite and his last match against Djokovic was a win, then eh, I mean, do the math. Uh, I mean, what do you think? What do you think RBA's peak here is? Like, could, could we see him as a Slam finalist at some point this year or next year? Well, I think this will be his best chance. Um, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always been impressed by how well he plays even in really big matches against tough opponents. Like I've seen him give give Federer some trouble in the late rounds of Masters and uh, he he played a really game match against, you know, the next level version of Djokovic we saw a few years ago at the US Open. You know, this is also really making me reevaluate RBA's first match of the tournament. I, I saw Andy Murray lose and mostly just thought, oh, you know, that this could be one of Murray's last matches or his last match. And it's, you know, it's a shame that he wasn't able to play at his top level. But now I'm thinking Andy Murray pushed Batista Agut to five sets. That's a really good result. Murray should feel good about where his tennis is, given how hobbled he is and how much pain he's in. Like, imagine what he could do if he could relieve some of those those injury woes so um it, it, it's funny how like retroactively a result can look really different but i think i was also doing what people have done so often in batista agut's career and kind of overlooked him and seen him as more of a foil and it's partly because he hasn't had a really big breakout result at a grand slam but beating Djokovic and going on to win doha was was a pretty good as good of a statement as you can make leading up to the Australian Open. Uh, speaking of breakout results, uh, his next opponent is Sitsipas. Uh, so in in a way, maybe he got a little lucky there missing Federer. I don't know if that, that really holds up logically to say you got lucky not playing Federer, but instead playing the guy who beat Federer. But... I mean, that seems like a good chance for him. Like, where would you put the odds in a Bautista Agu Sitsipas match? Oh, almost fifty-fifty. I mean, they're not that that far apart in the rankings. Um, yeah, maybe. I'd fi- yeah, I'd say fifty-fifty. What about you? Yeah, that seems fifty-fifty to me too. I mean, maybe a little bit in the direction of Bautista Agu, actually. Um, I mean, I'm not totally buying into Sitsipas. Like, it, as you point out, again, with, with Federer, he... I mean, that was a 50-50 match. He, he he won because of a little bit more luck falling on his side. And Bautista Gu is a guy who can figure out how to break your serve. So maybe that actually moves it in his favor. And that's a really good point about Andy Murray. I hadn't thought about that partly because that was six entire days ago and in the first week of a slam that feels like about six months. So I'd totally forgotten that match happened. Um, I just want to make a few uh, notes, including a sort of a correction to myself. Yeah. Um, One is by overall ELO and even more so by hardcore ELO, Batista Agut is ahead of Tsitsipas. So our intuition holds up. He's also slightly higher ranked in hard Cordilo than Clay Cordilo, uh, something like 11th to 13th. So he is very close to neutral on surfaces, but I, I think he's, he's slightly better on hard, or at least Elo does. But that was my impression from thinking of his past results. And then I may be making too much of Tsitsipas winning big matches with a lower winning percentage on return points than his opponent. He did that three times in the last 52 weeks, but he also lost three matches during that span in which he won a greater percentage of return points than his opponent. So that's kind of neutral. The three matches he won were big matches against top opponents late in tournaments with lots of points on the line. So that's why I think his ranking might be slightly inflated, but you never know what a guy could have gone on 
to do if he hadn't lost a really close match. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's more about the bunching of his wins than the nature of his wins. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, we will find out over the course of this year, unless, of course, he does this a couple more times at the Australian Open, wins the Australian Open on the back of some lucky wins, and we can continue being skeptical for another 12 months. But probably that's not going to happen. Um, a couple of doubles notes that we wanted to at least give a mention to. One, and this is related to, to mentioning Andy Murray and his possibly career-ending injury, is the return of Bob Bryan. We talked a few times last fall on the show about the the super doubles team of Mike Bryan and Jack Sock. Uh, Jack Sock was only playing with Mike to just kind of keep Mike in shape and busy until Bob came back. And in, in, over the course of that, they won two slams, so it was a, a, a good a good span for both of them. But uh, Bob Bryan is back from pretty major hip surgery, and they're still on the draw. I mean, are they in the are we in the third round of the men's doubles at this point, Carl? I think not everyone is in the same place, but I think they're now in the quarters. Okay. Uh, so a, a good show for them. And same thing with Jack Sock, actually. This is, I was really surprised to see this, that possibly the best doubles player in the world showed up in Australia partnering with a buddy from home who's barely a top 100 player, Jackson Withrow. I embarrassed to say this as your resident podcast host and tennis expert, but I'd never heard of the guy before looking at this draw. Uh, but they're in it too. Maybe they're one round behind. I'm not sure. They didn't play today. Um, but even if American tennis is in on again, off again in men's singles, there's lots of hope in men's doubles. Uh, and do you have any sense, Carl, of at what level Bob is back? Like, uh, do we get another couple of years of Brian Brothers domination? Or, like, I don't know, I mean, are we still waiting to see about coming back from this injury? Yeah, I would I would still think of it as waiting and seeing, just because it's so early. Uh, and it's it's really good so far. Um, really, really impressive. Like, in whichever warm-up tournament they played, and then here, they just winning a couple of matches, I think, is, is a good result. Uh, Bob was rushing to try to get ready for the World Tour Finals, and it didn't happen. So I was unsure whether to expect him by now, and if so, what to expect. They're not dominating matches, and they're experiencing some of the struggles that have kept them from dominating doubles as they once did the last few years, especially around returning. But... um, I, you know, I think this is all gravy at this point. It's also getting him matches and getting him to test how he's feeling. And from what I understand, he's feeling he's feeling great, much better than he expected to. So um, I wouldn't be surprised to see them win a slam or two this year, but I'd be very surprised to see them win this one. Well, that's outstanding to hear. That would be super cool if he managed to come back. And, and especially the, at their age, they're 40 now. Is that right? It sounds right. Yeah, so even in, in 2010's tennis, that's that's pretty old. Uh, not as old as Daniel Nestor, but even Daniel Nestor is finally retired. Uh, yeah, 40.7. 40.7. decimals. <laughs> yes, as we normally talk about age. So I do want to talk about the, the women's draw. There's been plenty of interesting action on that side as well. Uh, one thing that's been true of both the men's draw and the women's draw is that seeds have been surprisingly successful after some of the the ups and downs of the 2018 season. Um, coming into today's matches, when the round of 16 hadn't yet been started, 14 of the 16 in the men's round of 16 were seeded players. The only exceptions were Tiafo, who we've talked about, and Tomas Burdich, who he wasn't really that big of a surprise. He was in the top 32 in ELO. We've seen him have great results in slams and not too far in the in the past, including a quarterfinal last year at the Australian Open. So not a lot of surprises on the men's side, except for Tiafo. And the even bigger shock is on the women's side, where last year it seemed like every slam was setting new records for how quickly the seeds were eliminated or how many seeds lost in certain rounds. And of the 16 women who made the round of 16 this year at the Australian Open, 13 were seeded, 
The only exceptions were Pavlyuchenkova, who is kind of like, not really like Burdich, but it has often been seated at slam. She's not that far out. And the two ex- other exceptions were Enisimova, the young American, and Danielle Collins. So Enisimova was already out. Danielle Collins uh, had a shock win over Angelique Kerber today. But the main point is we've had not that many surprises, uh, not the upsets we're accustomed to, and a lot of women are still in the running to be number one with a title. Uh, Simona's still clinging to a modest lead in, in the live rankings, but when I wrote the show notes, there were six women who could be number one if they won the Australian Open title this year. Um, since then, as we're recording this late in the Australian night, um, Stevens lost to Pavlyuchenkova, so Sloan Stevens is out of the running. So we're down to five women who could be number one. But a lot of that is going to be determined even sooner. And maybe the biggest match of the tournament, certainly the most anticipated one so far, is the top of the draw, Simona Halep, the number one seed, versus Serena Williams, the number 16, which 16 seed, pointing out how truly... um, misleading seeds can be sometimes. So Carl, tell me what you're thinking about this match against the number one player versus the number one player of all time. Oh, Steffi's playing? No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, Monica Sellis, surprise comeback. <laughs> I take the number one player of all time partly because I, I want to do the thing that broadcasters always do. They're like, well, I took her at the start of the tournament, so I'm going to stick with her. But I... I really mean it in the case of Serena Williams. She has looked really good, um, pretty dominant. And sometimes she doesn't at the start of tournament. She goes on to win. And sometimes she does at the start of tournament. She doesn't win. So I'm making too much of it. But it it is pretty impressive to me um, just how how strong she's been so far, how much energy she's conserved. Maybe that's a bigger factor for her than it used to be. Um, and yeah, Halep, as you said, coming into the tournament was somewhat of an unknown in terms of her condition and she had a pretty tough battle against Kennan. So, and, and against Kanepi. So, uh, yeah, I, I think Serena, but you know, this is all to say a lot of words about something like a 55% chance or a 53% chance. I, I don't, I don't think she's a big favorite. Yeah, it's it's a really tough one to call because, as you point out, we, we've talked a number of times in previous episodes about Serena playing her way into form in slams. But at this slam, it might be Simona, who's at least it's been more important to her to play her way into form. I mean, she'd only played one match since, I don't know, October last year, uh, and she lost that one to Ash Barty. Um her first match here was against Kai Kanepi, who beat her at the, at the U.S. Open. She struggled in that match. Really, it could have gone either way until about four or five games in the second set. She played a really tough match against Sophia Kennan, which, I mean, what that means depends a lot on what you think about Sophia Kennan. Um, you know, I thought Kennan played really well, but that does feel like the sort of match that Simona should have won more easily. Again, it was seemed like a coin flip until a few games into the third set. And what might prove to be the breakthrough for Simona is a really surprisingly easy match against Venus Williams yesterday in the third round. Um, Venus is another player where it's tough to know exactly what level she's competing at right now. But she didn't look bad to me, but she never had a chance. And Venus's style is closer to Serena's than Sophia Kennan. I mean, so maybe that's a good sign that Simona's ready to, to play a good match against a, a more aggressive, big-hitting player. Uh, that's my case for Simona. I, I can't really say I believe strongly in it. Uh, I, I would probably go with you and say it's a, a slight edge to Serena. But, yeah, it will be really interesting to see. Now, Carl, you've picked Serena to be the winner of this tournament with the usual caveats that everybody has a pretty low percentage. Um, I've picked Simona at least out of sentiment, but my ELO forecast after today's results has Ashley Barty as the favorite up to 25% or something. Uh, Barty beat Sharapova today. Uh, Sharapova had knocked out Wozniacki and 
Ashley Barty is coming in pretty strong. Ashley Barty will also play Kvitova in the quarterfinals. Kvitova is someone I mentioned last week as as a pick to win the tournament. Let's say we've got we've got three contenders. So Ash Barty, Petra Kvitova, and the winner of Simona Serena. Are you still taking Serena as your favorite to win this tournament? As much as Elo is my pick for the number one ranking system of all time, I yeah, I'm gonna go with the number one player of all time. I mean Partly because Barty and Kvitova play each other, too. You could say, like, Serena is not a good pick and wasn't a good pick at the start because she potentially was going to face the number one player in the world, Halep, uh, relatively early in the tournament. But Barty Kvitova is also a very tough draw. And it's <laughs> to take a really, really safe pick, it seems like those two matches are going to produce the winner of the tournament. Is it really that safe of a pick? I mean, there's there's a a lot of other solid players still in the draw, including Naomi Osaka. Yeah, but I'm picking two of the four semifinalists, so already it should be about fifty percent. Yeah, I suppose so. Well, not necessarily. Simona Serena is a fourth rounder. Oh yes, you're right. That's true. Okay, and, so maybe not that safe of a pick. And they still have to beat uh, Kvitova, I think, or not? Uh, sorry, not Kvitova, Pliskova. Oh, the winner of Muguruza Pliskova. So that could be... Yeah, as you pointed out, when that many seeds went that deep, there are many good players, really good, great players, still in the draw, uh, contending for the title. And I I was struck by how close the race for number one is now, in in that Kvitova doesn't need to win the tournament. She just needs to win her next match and have Simona lose her next match, and she'd be in the... she'd, She'd clinch number one. Yeah, and yeah, as you say, we can we can easily see her doing that. It is interesting that there's so many good players left, and then one of the semifinal spots will be the winner of Danielle Collins and Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova. What, what do you? Th- I mean, Pavlyuchenkova always struck me as someone who could contend, make a final, maybe even win a Slam title. Like Collins is a much bigger surprise. She'd never won a Slam match before, but. Uh, are, are we really that surprised by Pabs being this deep? Um, in the quarterfinal, no. I mean, having the luck to land in the semifinal, I guess when you're looking at it this way and saying that she had a couple good wins and got to the quarterfinal and got lucky, then sure, I can buy Pavlyuchenkova in a semifinal. But in uh, on the other hand, she seems more like the Baptista Agu of the WTA, uh, which I don't mean as a negative, but in a small way, it's a negative because it isn't someone you'd really look to be in a semifinal or final of a slam. You know, I saw a really interesting stat about her um, just a couple days ago that she's one of either the only woman or one of only two or three women who have reached the fourth round of every slam in singles and doubles. Um, I love that. Yeah, I think maybe Kuznetsova was another one. Um, I'm just making stuff up now, so so definitely check that stat if you're reusing it somewhere. But but yeah, r- really impressive results over a long period of time. Someone who will reliably win a lot of matches, but not someone who's won a lot of a lot of big upsets. So I mean, the, the win against Sloan is I mean, it, is a big step. I don't know whether it, it's really a turning point. Maybe she has too many seasons under her belt to really be at a turning point kind of stage. But, I mean, she's always been a threat. She's a really aggressive player, can get you off of your rhythm and overpower you, at least for stretches of a match. So, yeah, I mean, getting this far isn't a surprise. Uh, she's going to have her work cut out for her if she gets past Danielle Collins, though. You know, I think we both do this thing on the show often where we we mentioned that someone hasn't done something at a slam as a, as an argument for why we don't expect them to. And I wonder if we should think about in reverse that like if a player in terms of overall performance and results and ELO ratings and rankings seems better than their slam results, then we should be like aware of our bias toward thinking that because they hadn't done it, they won't do it. I mean, someone like Collins, like, no, she's never won a slam match before she won't she'll continue to not win a slam match now i'm not saying either of us should have predicted her to reach the quarterfinals and lose two games to kerber but 
it does seem like a bias to be on guard against because we we have plenty of examples of players who had never done X until suddenly they did X and then we were all surprised even though they they put up a body of work that would suggest we shouldn't have been so surprised. I see your point. Um, are are there other examples that you're thinking of besides Collins? I mean, I feel like with Collins. Collins isn't sure. a good example because it's yeah. not like she had won a lot of titles elsewhere. Yeah. I think the, the prime example that I'm as guilty of as anyone is, you know, laughing like, ah, ha, as if Zverev is going to reach a semifinal of the slam. Um, in, instead, we should think he's just as likely to as if he had piled up some of those impressive wins at slams. On the men's side, it's a little different than the women's side because you can at least – draw some inference that there's a best of five versus best of three gap in a player's results. But on the women's side, I feel like if, if they've put it up elsewhere, they're, they're a threat to do it at slams. I mean, with, with Pavs, that's not totally the story because she did make some quarterfinals at slams, but yeah, I just think, you know, Stan Wawrinka is no one ever thought would make a final of a slam and then won three. So there are going to be players who are going to to come out of nowhere with with that seemingly nowhere. Well, and didn't Vavrinka kind of come out of nowhere? Like it wasn't like he had built a big resume of of winning impressive matches, and and it was only his lack of performance at slams that was keeping us from predicting that sort of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm making an argument that somewhat is based on the idea that someone who's very unusual and still isn't a really good model for, for the case I'm, I'm describing is, um, is some, is, is a repeatable story. Um, I, I guess I just mean like, let's, let's, uh, let's consider their overall abilities and, and overall career. Um, not just whether they had had one or two deep runs that could have themselves been flukes, but now just look like really solid results. Yeah, I, I'm surprised to hear you say that because I've always suspected that my bias was too far in the other direction. Like, I, I, I've i picked Svitolina an almost embarrassing number of times, even though she's the, the sort of WTA equivalent of Alexander Zverev at this point. That's Svitolina's the, the ultimate example, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you and, already are accounting for this very well. I mean, I, I, I hope so, and I'm generating forecasts based on ELA results, which don't wait slam results more than anything else um and yeah i mean i think this draw this draws on a a larger point about how analytics are affecting sports that the the better that we the better we get at making predictions and automating those predictions the more that conversations have to stake out other territory um like it's not interesting anymore to say that I don't know Simona had the best results last year, therefore we have to favor her on paper or something like that. That might might not be the best example, but there's no reason to say that anymore because you can look that up. It's it's well established. It's not interesting. So it, it you end up having to having to talk about the things that can't be quantified, like the fact that again, simple example that. Serena's former greatness, even though it doesn't show up in her ranking or even her ELO at this point, that makes her the favorite. Or maybe there's something about the matchup that's unique to what we're going to see in, in a certain match. Um, so I wonder if, if if maybe the opposite is true, that even if even if we tend to overrate the influence of Grand Slam, like if we're going to have these conversations and hope to add something to an ELO-based forecast or the betting odds or something like that, then we are going to end up focusing on these these minor factors that aren't captured by the numbers, like Zverev's lack of results at the Grand Slams or something along those lines. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. So now I feel better about not picking Ashley Barty to win the Australian Open. <laughs> yeah, I think there are a lot of reasons not to pick Ashley Barty to win the Australian Open. And I, I still don't totally understand why she does so well in ELO. Um, you know, it partly goes back to what you pointed out a couple of weeks ago, that the ELO rankings are so packed together at the top that 
I mean, whoever's at the top is only a few points above everybody else. So it's really just like a seven-way tie or something. But the fact that, that she's around ahead and she's a little better than Kvitova in either rankings makes her the, the favorite, at least at this point. If Simona wins tomorrow, it looks like maybe she'll be the ELO favorite going into the quarterfinals. But it'll be close. I mean, I, I've one useful thing about about having the ELO forecast is it does force us to, to reckon with some players who we wouldn't really pick as being in the mix. Like, I think if I didn't have ELO ratings and the forecast to look at, I would be thinking of, of Barty as definitely a secondary threat to win the title. Um, maybe not seriously considering her at all. But seeing the numbers, it's it's tough to ignore. Um, let's see. I was hoping when we had this episode, we'd we'd have more to talk about with some of the younger players like Arena Sabalenka, Diana Yastremska, and Amanda Anisimova. Um, they're all out now. His Anisimova, the is she seventeen still? The still seventeen, as wow. as Chris Everett likes to say, the young seventeen-year-old. The young seventeen-year-old is she really a young seventeen-year-old? Is she? Are you saying she might be an old seventeen-year-old? Well, no, I'm just, you usually know the decimals, Carl. <laughs> oh, in that sense. Like, how would we round it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she is, yeah, she's 17.3. Wow. I mean, in the sense of, of being really good at tennis, I'd say she's a quite old 17-year-old. But yeah. sure, maybe Christy's right. Um, so Enesimova made it to the fourth round. She was... A, a, a big surprise, maybe at the same level as as Tiafo having a breakthrough tournament. Um, she beat Sabalenka in the third round. Diana Yastremska, who's eighteen, was another another fresh name to to contend with here. She made the third round and then lost pretty easily to Serena, but a good tournament from her. Uh, I wrote something a couple days ago that highlighted Yastremska and the fact that some of these women are really, really, really aggressive. Like, more winners and unforced errors than Kvitova, who was the previous poster girl for aggressiveness. And I suggested, but can't really prove it, it seems like there's this generation of of players coming up who just hit really big. Uh, And, I mean, I'd be pretty excited if we had Yastrzemska, Sabalinkin, and Isimova leading the way into the 2020s in women's tennis. But Carl, do you think that's a, a legit trend? Do you think we're seeing more big hitters come along to take over the sport again? Yeah, and I, I wonder to what extent it's just it's cyclical in terms of the sort of body types and skills that come through the sport, and to what extent players see something that looks like an extreme strategy, in fact, is the extreme strategy on tour, and see that it works and and why not do that and more? Um, you know, why stop there? And when I say players, that could be their coaches and it could be training philosophies. It's really exciting to see, especially alongside the style, the other style that's that's now more dominant at the top of the sport of being a great uh, retriever and really consistent and extremely fit. Um, it's a, it's a great contrast with, with any of these styles. If one becomes dominant, it can also become tiresome. Yeah, and as you said at the beginning, it's it's it is cyclical. Like I think players will develop skills to figure out how to beat the players who are at the top. And I mean, this is one way to beat Simona Halep, among other players, is to come out bashing and and take her out of her game. One thing. So, that, Jeff, does that mean yeah. playing a very different style leads to more upsets? I see where you're going with that, Carl. Um, I want to make one more point about the the Please. aggression stuff, and we'll get there. So, bookmark that. Um, but with with Yastremska, Sabalenka, and Isimova, and I'm going to throw Yelena Ostapenko into the mix as well as a young player known for being very aggressive. Um, I was just tinkering around with some numbers before we recorded this this morning, and came across something uh, surprising to me and a little bit scary. That, so what I tried to do was, for these players who are rated the rated the most aggressive, meaning they're if on a per shot basis, they're 
hitting the most unforced errors and hitting the most winners, ending points on their own racket. And I tried to break that out into rally aggression, so everything but the serve, and then a, a separate measure of just how many unreturned serves are they hitting. And those four players, Yastrzemska, Sabalenka, Anisimova, and Ostapenko, were in the top 10 of players who were had the biggest difference between being ag- aggressive in rallies and not as aggressive on serves, or maybe aggressive is the wrong word, but not as effective ending points on their serves. And maybe Ostapenko isn't, she's not that tall, so maybe she doesn't have a lot of um, of upside on her serve at this point, but Sabalenka I mean, already has a big serve. I think she's going to figure out how to get more points out of that. Uh, Yastrzemska and Anisimova are both very young, have a lot of time to develop those skills, all of which is to say that they're some of the most aggressive players in tennis now, and there's lots of room for them to become even more aggressive and win even more points on their own racket, which is a bit of a scary thought, especially with Sabalenka. Yeah, what what is the sort of where are we headed in average rally length length in a matchup between two of those players? It would be pretty low. Um, hmm. I don't have the numbers handy, but uh, yeah, I, I, the Yastrzemska Serena match was charted, and I'm guessing that was pretty low. I've seen a couple really low men's match results lately, one of which was the the Pune final between Karlovic and Kevin Anderson, which I think was two exactly two shots per rally, and then the Opelka-Fabiano match in the second round of the Australian Open was 2.9, which is pretty low when you have one guy like Thomas Fabiano in there. Uh, but yeah, we're going to have a lot of swings and misses, a lot of swings and winners, um, and that could be the future of women's tennis. So getting back to what I bookmarked of yours, Carl, um, differences in styles leading to upsets. This is something that I've theorized before. I think we've talked about it recently on the podcast. Um, so, and you brought it up in the context of players beating Halep. Like, do you have a better chance of beating someone who's more of a counterpuncher if you're a if you're a big hitter like a Sabalenka or a Serena, for another good example. Um, before we get to my findings, do you agree with me, Carl, that, that that's that's an appealing theory to think that coming in a match with a radically different style would increase the chances of an upset compared to two people with the same style duking it out? I do think it's appealing. I mean, I think there's... There is, at the other end of the spectrum, the extreme of two players who are almost mirror images of each other playing, which is something Federer described about Tsitsipas. And And also about Dan Evans. (laughs) Yeah. Federer can do so many different things that he's the mirror image of all of us. Um, That potentially that could get into your head and, like, you could start to imagine, like, what you would do and... um, Maybe it's better to have some difference so you can you cannot be confused about who you're playing and get lost in your head. But but that that's that's an extreme, somewhat speculative case. In general, it just makes sense that if you do something different and uh, specifically do something that forces a player to not play the way she or he normally plays, that that would take them out of their comfort zone, would make it more likely to have an upset. Yeah, and I wonder if that's something you can do even if you don't play a different sort of style. Like if, if your goal is just to take a player out of their comfort zone, then maybe that just means bringing them into the net more, or hitting more slices, or serving to their weak side, or means hitting more body serves. Or I don't know, there's a lot of things. But even if, even if you do have exactly the same style that your opponent does, you can, you can do a lot along those lines. Well, in fact, um, and in fact, I mean, that raises the question of like why would a player have just a style like and these scores are aggregates so there may be players within these scores who who do play different styles against different opponents and and that's harder to capture right and that's one of the problems with trying to to analyze playing style at all is yeah we kind of have to treat it as one-dimensional to do the 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 sort of studies that i'm doing but players aren't one-dimensional i mean they've got a lot more skills and can be captured in one number but the, the reason that Carl brought this up is something else that I posted at the blog this week about how these playing styles match up. Since 
we've, we've mentioned this theory enough times that I figured it was time to test it. And all I did was I just measured every ATP player by aggression score. So how often they're ending points on their own racket, split them into four groups from least aggressive to most aggressive and looked at how each group did against every other group based on, um, based on what we would have expected going into the match. So I compared the results to what the, what the pre-match predictions were for all those results. And basically just came up with how, how accurate the predictions were for each matchup. And it turned out that the theory's totally wrong. Maybe there's something there to be salvaged, but as if we split up players into one-dimensional groups like this, the theory's totally wrong. The, if there was a player who's less aggressive in the match, even if they're playing a more aggressive player, no matter who they're playing, then the results are actually a little bit more predictable. The more aggressive the players both are, so especially when you get into the, the Isner Opelka territory, or maybe not quite Federer Sitsipas, but maybe Federer Sitsipas is on the edge of this, those are the ones that are unpredictable. And that comes back to everything else we've been talking about that. When you have two big servers facing off, you're more likely to get to tie breaks. You're more likely to have a small number of break point chances. There aren't that many really crucial points, so luck is going to play a bigger factor. And the bigger factor that luck plays, the more likely you're going to have an upset, basically. So this mismatch of style theory, I mean, pending further work, we can pretty much throw that one away and just come back to the idea that results are less predictable based on how much the serve is dominating the match, how much they take returning out of the equation. Yeah, and it's always struck me as one of the remarkable things about Federer's career, not that he's a terrible returner, but how much more serve-dominated his game is than his closest rivals, and yet how consistent he's been able to be. Yeah, and I I think his return game ends up being underrated for that reason. That in, it's similar with Zverev, actually. Like Zverev's serve can be so big that I have a hard time seeing him as a guy who can return really well. But statistically, he's—I think he's an, an above-average returner. And if you combine those two things, having a, a dominant serve and above-average return, then the sky's the limit. I mean, that's basically what Federer did for more than a decade. Um, so there just aren't very many players who've pulled that off. That's the what makes it so unique and, and powerful. So there were something like 200 matches since our last podcast. So we've surely missed a lot of big storylines from the Australian Open's first week. We love um, you, mixed doubles. <laughs> do we, though? I know you do. But there's so little really to say about mixed doubles most of the time. Uh, just come with me to a match and you'll have seven story ideas. I guess I just assume that anything we talk about should be at least a little bit relatable or possibly of interest to our listeners. You just, <laughs> I just feel, And I'm not trying to be snarky. I just mean that it, I know mixed doubles is interesting. It's fun to watch. It's super fun to talk with you about it and research ideas when we're watching it. But when it comes down to actually doing it or talking about it, it, it sort of vanishes. Um, maybe it's just because there's such bad doubles data. It would be way more interesting if we had data for each player's contributions to every match and we could drill into the, the gender differences and which women did the best job returning the men's serves and stuff like that. I think that would be fascinating. This has been talking about talking about mixed doubles from the tennis abstract podcast. Yes, which brings me back to Carl's accidental uh, slogan suggestion from a week or two ago, Tennis Abstract Podcast. We are cognitively annoying. Um, One thing I did think was cool with mixed doubles is, for one thing, it's cool that Leander Paez is still playing. Um, But did you see who his partner is this tournament, Carl? Uh, I did. I was struck by it. I now don't remember. Who is it? Sam Stozer. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that is one thing that's consistently cool about mixed doubles is just some of the both fascinating and wacky partnerships that end up happening. I was also struck by the fact that Tamea Babos and Martin Fuchovic are playing together, which 
I mean, I normally wouldn't think too much about either of them, especially Fucic playing doubles, but they're both Hungarian, and there's a credible all-Hungarian mixed doubles team for maybe the first time in a while. So, for 2020 Olympics. Yeah, they're already preparing. Good for them. So you heard it here first. Favorites for a medal, if not the gold medal, the Hungarian mixed doubles team in Tokyo. That's probably as good a note as any to end on. So, Carl, thank you for joining me, as always. Thanks, Jeff. Everyone who tuned in, thanks for listening this week. Uh, We'll be back at least after the tournament. Maybe we'll throw one in before the final rounds. We've discussed it. We'll see whether it happens. Uh, But in any event, thank you for listening, and we'll be back with you soon. Enjoy the end of the Australian Open.